Welcome to Building Safe Workplaces, casual talk about serious matters. I'm your host, Tommy Nip with Hask. Today you'll hear our May 20th webinar focusing on COVID-19's impact on our retail industry. Stay safe. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, thank you very much for jumping on this webinar with the University of Texas School of Public Health and the Houston Area Safety Council. Very excited to have everybody on here. This is this is part one of a, of a seven-part series on opening Texas the right way. Today, we're gonna to be talking about our uh, retail industry, uh, an industry that is so vital to the economy of Texas. So uh, we've got some really good subject matter experts in this field and on this topic. So we're very excited to have them. Uh, we thank them for being a part of this webinar today. And we're gonna introduce those individuals in a few minutes. But I wanna highlight that as much as possible, this is not a, a lecture series. So we're gonna show some, some hot topic slides up front just to kind of give everybody a snapshot of what's going on how we are doing in Texas as far as this this uh, COVID virus, and then and then dive into the retail industry specifically today. You know, what is everybody doing to to make sure that we can open and open safely? What are we doing in the retail industry to make sure that our our customers that are coming into these uh, locations are are being treated in the most proper, uh, safe, hygienic way possible? and then to give retailers some information on what they can do to meet those, those standards and criteria. So please feel free to type in questions along the way in the question box. You should see a question box in there uh, and feel free to just type out as many questions as you can. We're gonna be looking at those throughout and really try to answer as many of them as we can, if not all of them. So again, not going to try to lecture too much today, just going to give you some hot topics, some hot answers, and then answer your questions. Uh, if you can see our, our screen, our slideshow that's that's running there in the background, we've got two major entities that are putting this webinar series together. The first is the Houston Area Safety Council, which I'm part of. Our mission is to build safe workplaces. So Anything that we can do to educate and to train and build a safe workplace, that's what we are here to do. And we have a great partnership and collaborative effort with uh, UT School of Public Health. And their mission is to change the culture of health through excellence and graduate education, research, and engagement. So it's a, it's a good natural fit for both of these entities to get together and to help provide as many resources and knowledge as we can. So again, as we're going through here, feel free to type in as many questions as you can. These are our platinum sponsors to the Houston Area Safety Council that with their efforts help us provide some of these webinar series. So we thank all of our platinum sponsors. Here's our agenda, a uh, quick agenda. Gonna look at Governor Abbott's executive order to reopen Texas. I'm sure most of us are familiar with some of that stuff, but we're gonna help answer some questions today. What's the current COVID-19 status in Texas right now? Dr. Delclose is really gonna highlight how we're doing in Texas right now. Try to talk about some of the, the, the proper use of, of terminology, what some of these terms mean. Sometimes you hear them, the governor spouts some things out and maybe we don't understand exactly what we're talking about. So we're gonna help uh, simplify some of those things. Methods to reduce risk in the workplace. 
what can we do in the retail industry that will reduce the risk of not only the retail employees themselves, but also those customers coming in to those shops and, and places of business. A review of some of the resources that are available to you. So we're gonna give you some of those websites so you can go and reference those yourselves later. Uh, but, but more importantly, a Q&A session throughout this, this uh, seminar today. So again, type those questions in. We're gonna answer as many as, as we can. Here's our list of panelists today, uh, a, a wide variety of expertise. I'm very happy to know all of these people and can, can honestly say we have a, we have a stellar cast of uh, panelists today for you. I'm not gonna go through everybody individually, but uh, if, I, if I went through all of their bios, it would take the full hour and a half. So uh, uh, you can see all their names, all of their, their, their top credentials that they have behind those names and where they're located in those uh, educational uh, facilities. We have a couple of guest panelists today that Dr. Delclose is gonna introduce a little bit later. And I'm your moderator, Dr. Heisler. I'm the Chief Medical Officer at the Houston Area Safety Council. Again, thank you to everybody that, that registered and that is attending today. So just a, you know, a quick umbrella summary. We all know that the governor is trying to do as much as he can to, to open up our economy. Uh, Texas took you know, a big hit over the past couple of months, as every state in our union did. Uh, but our governor is, is determined to open us up as much as we can, but as safely as we can. And he's highlighted and, and mandated some criteria that we that we have to meet. So I go through some of that. You know, if you go to that website that I just showed, you can see some of these things. They are they are industry specific. So if you're looking to see what the the ordinances are, the standards are for bars or gyms or retail, it's all outlined there. You can just click and see these pages that uh, the governor's task force has laid out for those individual uh, industry sectors. So I'm, I'm not gonna go through all of these, but just so you're aware, there are some pretty specific uh, thresholds and standards that these industries have to meet and have to uh, uh, roll out for them to be considered safe and ready to, to open. So just know that that task force is trying to do as much as they can to make sure that the employees in the retail sector are taken care of and the customers entering those places of business are going to be able to shop and, and not get sick. So George, Dr. Delclose, I'm going to roll this over to you. Welcome. Okay, thank you. Um, well, before I start my part, I just wanted to introduce our two guest panelists today. Both are from El Paso, and uh, they represent different aspects of the retail industry. Melissa Santos is part of a third generation of Food City Supermarkets, which is a family-owned chain of supermarkets in El Paso. Um, she's an analyst uh, there where she works mainly on forecasting and budgeting for the stores, and recently took on the task of what we would we may be referring to in this uh, webinar as the COVID program administrator, uh, but basically the task of ensuring that her stores are following guidelines and that they are uh, looking out for the welfare and protection of the, both employees and customers from COVID-19. Uh, so Melissa really represents a large chain uh, retailer. We also have Jesuina Legaspi, who is the sole owner of GAL Fashion, which is a high-end retail store in El Paso. Uh, Jesuina has 11 years in retail experience and has started up about eight companies. Um, and uh, 
at the um, at GAL Fashion, she pretty much is chief cook and bottle washer. She does everything uh, from buying, marketing, accounting, finance, sales, and styling. So uh, she's our representative, let's say, of smaller retail operations and uh, has been quite successful in handling the shelter-in-place and quarantine uh, uh, orders with a lot, a lot of strategy and adjusting uh, their motto to cater to what the market needed. So we're very thankful to have them uh, as guest panelists this week. And uh, you'll be hearing more from them. And please feel free to address uh, any questions uh, to them as well as to us. So one of the important pieces of the governor's um, reopening Texas report that is emphasized a lot is that decisions are going to be decisions and 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 the loosening up of, of restrictions are going to follow a phased approach. I think everybody heard that. Um, the governor has already spoken several times, most recently was this past Monday with another level of opening. And the other important thing of the report is that it must be data-driven, that decisions need to be based on numbers. This is not an issue, although we hear a lot about it on TV, it should not be an issue of public health concerns being confronted with business or economic concerns, but quite the contrary. It's, it's working together in partnerships, uh, looking out for people, understanding the hit that the economy is taking and really encouraging reopening, but with a with a mind, an open mind towards following the numbers carefully and uh, and then adjusting as needed. This slide, I was hoping to have the updated one for today, but it didn't arrive in time. But this is a slide that shows the daily numbers of, um, uh, the daily new numbers of cases of COVID in Texas as of uh, last Friday. And what we see uh, in this graph is very interesting. This is for the state of Texas. We see that uh, the first red line, which is at about um, uh, toward the end of March, was when the shelter-in-place policies began to take place all over the state. And you see that they were initiated at a point in time when the curve was rising. So there were more new cases uh, every day. And But, you know, it takes roughly about two weeks, two to three weeks, to see the impact of any measure that one implements, whether that measure is positive or negative. So if we looked at the second red line, which is about two weeks later, we see that that increase in the curve in Texas started to bend, started to flatten, and in fact started to uh, decrease. Um, and then it started to rise a little bit. Um, and when the phase one reopening started, which started several days after the governor published the orders, which was on April 17th, the curve was rising again. And, and uh, you know, you see that the increase happens before the reopening has officially taken place. So something was going on. Uh, part of it could have been increased uh, amount of testing. You know, the testing has been uh, widely de in demand that we need to do more testing. And the more you test, the more cases you're going to find. And then, um, uh, so it's premature to uh, ascribe it to the reopening. But if you look two weeks later, which is where we are now, we're still rising. Uh, next slide, please. However, this is just the general average for Texas. Uh, Texas is a big state. Um, and if we look at Texas here, you see that it's a mosaic of different colors. The lighter colors represent fewer cases, in some cases, even no cases. Uh, and the darker colors represent um, uh, larger numbers of cases. And these are rates, they're not absolute numbers. Uh, so that means the number of cases per population, per 100,000 population. So when you take that overall Texas number, you've got to also think about 
the heterogeneity, the variation that there is across the state. You may be living in a county where there really isn't much of an issue, or you may be living in a county that has a real issue. Okay, next slide. For example, uh, in the Houston area, we look at the same curve and we see the same pattern. Uh, when the shelter-in-place orders were, were passed, ordinances were passed, after about two weeks, they started to decrease. They decreased nicely in Houston. And after phase one uh, started, it's increased a little bit, but not at the same rate as the state for the for uh, on the whole. So this is just a Houston example, but it, it should help our employers locally to decide you know, to what degree they open or they don't open. Next slide, please. Um, the metrics that the governor's office is following is two metrics. The, number one, and I don't have a slide for this, is the number of total positive tests over the total number of tests. They're watching that, and as long as that number stays stable, let's say 5% of all tests done are remain positive, then we will probably be okay. We hope to see it go down over time, but what we don't want is sharp increases uh, over the, the total number of tests. But the other thing that they're looking at is hospital capacity because we don't want to go back to a point where um, the hospitals are in a fix because they don't have enough beds or ICU beds or ventilators or enough protective equipment. And if you look on this slide, and this is Houston as of yesterday, excuse me, as of two days ago, um, in all of these categories that I just mentioned, you see green dots. Green is good. That means we have ample capacity at this point in time. So that's another metric that's being followed. Are there enough beds to handle a surge if it comes back? And are there enough ICU beds? And are there enough ventilators and enough protective equipment? And in that sense, I think the state overall as a whole has done a good job. Thank you. All right, let me click on our next here. I think we have Dr. Janelle Rios coming up next. Hi, everybody. Thank you for having me. Um, and Tommy, if you want to go ahead and scroll through the slides, and I shouldn't have done the animation. Um, no. What I'm going to do, thank you, yeah, thank you. Um, briefly share with you all a well-known and very often used public health tool that serves as the foundation for controlling hazards in workplaces worldwide. Um, it's known as the hierarchy of controls. Um, and the hierarchy really refers to the level of effectiveness of each of those controls. So the most effective control is elimination. Um, and you see that in the blue. Uh, and examples of elimination includes keeping the virus outside of the workplace. Um, so have your employees self-screen and not come to work if they are ill. Um, and to work remotely when at all possible. And I, um, I also wanted to highlight the fourth bullet in the blue section to employ strategies to remove virus particles from the workplace, meaning cleaning and disinfection. And there, be sure to follow the EPA uh, recommendations um, and follow the manufacturer's instructions on those disinfectants. Um, and, and clean and disinfect often. For example, if you have a multi-story uh, retail center, um, please uh, wipe down the elevator buttons or the escalator uh, railings uh, pretty frequently, um, at least twice a day, if not more, more often. Um, the, the next most effective control is engineering controls, and that really refers to isolating workers from the hazard. So here uh, in retail, 
using those plexiglass knees type barriers um, or employing drive-through windows where you isolate um, your employees from customers to the extent possible. Um, also establishing social distance in the workplace by using um, floor markings and very clear signage, both to remind your employees as well as your customers. Um, our, our next lower level of control is administrative controls. And here I want to highlight training employees, training them on how to properly um, wash their hands, how to put on and take off gloves, um, how to wear facial coverings. And I have a few examples here of um, a store-bought surgical mask, um, a homemade uh, mask, um, and to use those uh, as, as much as possible. Um, and if you can, to because I believe we're talking mostly to employers, to relax sick leave policies so that you can encourage your employees to stay home if they're ill. Um, and then the least effective uh, control is the use of personal protective equipment. Um, so as, as you reopen and expand your business during this time, please remember to provide the, the supplies that's necessary, uh, including soap, water, hand sanitizer, uh, gloves, uh, respiratory protection if that's applicable, um, and all the cleaning uh, and supplies. Um, and that, so my, I was given two minutes to talk, so I'm happy to answer questions at the end uh, if you have any. Thank you. Sure, and I would just, thank you, Dr. Rios. And I just want to remind all of our attendees today, please, as, as, as our experts are, are talking about their relative topic, please type in questions so we don't forget about them and, and we can certainly, uh, if there's a hot one that comes through, then we can address it right then, but otherwise we'll address it at the end of the, the, the uh, PowerPoint. All right, let's go on. It looks like it's Dr. Mena next. Thank you. Yeah, as Dr. Rios mentions, some of the different uh, approaches, if you will, to developing workplace safeguards, I wanted to highlight a few factors that may drive infection risks based upon uh, the extent of exposure. And one of those is with the role of environmental sources, in particular uh, inanimate surfaces. So the different surfaces in our surroundings. And we know that the novel coronavirus uh, is not thought to be transmitted primarily that way. However, we do know from other studies in the peer-reviewed literature of other respiratory viruses that environmental sources in the workplace setting has had an impact as we've seen infection risks go up in different business settings. Another factor is the improper use of controls. So it's important to make sure that employees and patrons understand why they're wearing face coverings. It's important for specific businesses to know how often to disinfect certain surfaces. So again, the timing and where disinfection should take place is important. And then finally, uh, one of the issues that I think has been lacking somewhat when we've been talking about reopening businesses and developing effective safeguards is the possible impact of the patron, the customer. So someone who's coming in from the outside who may not be familiar with the workplace safeguards that have been developed, and they could potentially cause a disruption as an employer you know, had already tried to mitigate 
the risk of transmission within that work setting among the employees. So I think that the role of the customer is very important consideration when developing workplace safeguards. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Mann. Dr. Emery. Hello, uh, greetings from Houston. So I've got four points and uh, I, I would like to underscore that the, the real intent of this event is to be on a, a, a listening session to, to quickly go through some uh, PowerPoint, but more importantly, hear what the concerns are and questions uh, for the community that we serve. So uh, my four points, number one is we see a lot in the news about the term COVID-19 but unfortunately, the term prior to that is novel, and that's kind of been dropped from the, the, um, the media lexicon. But in fact, that's really important because the term novel means there are certain things we know about this virus and there's certain things that are not known. And so as, as an employer, I think it's important for people to understand that we're still learning as we're earning, so to speak, here, and that there, things may change. Um, so, for example, uh, the, the understanding that the disease could be transmitted without symptoms, with, without a person exhibiting symptoms, hence that's why the game kind of changed with regard to community masking. Uh, so, I, I think within your employee base, it's probably important to set the expectation, this is what we know and this is what we can control and we will monitor the situation, but there could be changes coming. I, I think that's a, a prudent way to approach it. Uh, also, just want to mention that something you might want to monitor in the evening news or, or other websites is something in epidemiology that we use a lot, what's called the R naught, it's R sub-zero value. And that's an important number because what that says is based on the data, how many additional cases would we expect to see from a confirmed case? And so the current uh, literature uh, suggests that the R naught for COVID-19 uh, is 2.2. So for every one confirmed case that we have, we would expect to see 2.2 additional cases. To put that in perspective, I believe, and I'll defer to Dr. Delclos or Dr. Heisler on this, but I, I think the R naught for measles is about 15 or 16 or something. Is that, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, okay, got it. So anyhow, so just something you want to monitor for is, is that. Uh, so 2.2. Uh, the second thing, uh, the point is, there's a, a lot of discussion about screening, and the questions I'm getting as the safety guy is that everybody's focused on temperature screening. But in fact, screening really begins at home, and several of the presenters have mentioned this, the notion of employers reaching out to their employees with some basic uh, information prior to their arrival to the workplace. So things such as, as, as Dr. Rios mentioned, if you're feeling ill, don't come to work. Um, you know, do you have these signs and symptoms? And, and the, the document that Dr. Heisler showed uh, that the state has produced, there, there's some nice kind of screening questions there. Uh, so I would just encourage you to not focus so much on the issue of um, temperature screening upon arrival to the facility, but screening actually begins at home. My third point, it has to do with masking. There's a lot of confusion about this. Um, the face coverings, so the cloth face coverings or the surgical masks, those are intended to keep you from inadvertently uh, infecting someone else, right? They are not 
intended to protect you. That, that's not what they're designed for. Where we have other masks that are being worn are for the protection of the wearer. And you've probably heard a lot in the news about N95s or P100s or something called uh, Pappers, but those are intended to protect the wearer. And those have been in short supply. And so they have been necessarily uh, restricted for use in the healthcare setting for those people who are um, working directly with, with patients that are either suspected or confirmed cases. And, and as the industrial might uh, whirls into motion, more of those will be available. But um, we just want to be clear about the difference between face coverings uh, and, and uh, PPE. And then my last point has to do with cleaning and disinfection. Um, and uh, it, one of the things I, I think for all employers, we want to make sure that whatever cleaning materials that are being used by your company or perhaps a contract company that you have, ensure that they are an EPA uh, registered disinfectant, rule number one. Rule number two is if they're buying the stuff in bulk and then mixing it in, prior to its use, make sure that they're following manufacturer's recommendations. In other words, if it's you know one cup of this and two gallons of that or whatever it is, uh, we've had experiences where the, the, the uh, cleaning group is not following that. And then something specifically you want to focus on is what is considered um, the um, contact time. In other words, for these different products, it may say, so let's say we're doing something simple as cleaning doorknobs and someone's going around just spraying the doorknob and then wiping it off. Well, that doesn't meet the criteria for the contact time. So that's something that we want to be aware of that perhaps you spray the doorknob or let's say you clean off a table, uh, for example, between uh, patrons. Um, the contact time may be two minutes or maybe five minutes. I don't know. You have to look it up to see which one it is. But I would encourage you to focus on on the um, because this environmental persistence issue is similar to what um, Dr. Mina was talking about. Uh, it can be a route of transmission and we want to but it can be managed if we pay attention to that. Uh, so I think the next slide is just a series of references. Um, I think I don't remember, but I only have one slide, but I think the second slide might have been a bunch of references, but maybe it got cut out. But I'm happy to share that with whoever uh, any anybody who's on the webinar, but we can share it with. Sure, I believe it's at the very end. So we'll we'll show okay. that as well. Um, before we go on to, to Dr. DeFrates, I wanted to just uh, bring George back into the conversation because I, you know, I, I want to make sure that people understand what that R not means and what the 2.2 means. And, and Dr. Emery, Bob did a great job of, of comparing it to the measles. So the COVID-19 virus is much less contagious than the measles is. Mm -hmm. so, but George, where does, it, where does it fit as compared to uh, how contagious the flu is? Right, so the flu has an R naught value of around 1.6. Uh, so it is, so that means that um, the novel coronavirus, the COVID, the one that causes the COVID-19 infection is more contagious. However, over time with the measures, um, and this is sort of without considering any type of protections, once you start implementing protections, the goal is to lower that R naught for any infection. So uh, once a, a community hits an R naught of one or less, that means we're in good shape. That means that it is not spreading, and that's what the goal is. Perfect. Okay. I'm gonna move on here. 
Let's see. Is that the right slide, Dave? That is it. Okay. Take it away. Thank you. Greetings from San Antonio, sunny San Antonio. Um, what uh, we wanted to do is at least uh, begin to present to you as retail employers some resources that uh, that you might find beneficial as you embark on this uh, this process of opening your doors again. And so, in addition to the many resources that we are posting on our website, we went ahead and listed some of the retail specific resources uh, for you. And I would like to draw your attention first and foremost to the CDC. They have provided their interim guidance for businesses and, and employers there. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration as well has provided uh, retail specific uh, guidelines as well as uh, some resources, as well as the Texas Department of State Health Services. I'd also like to draw your attention to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the National Retail Association and the Texas Retailers Association. All of these associations uh, are providing uh, very good resources on their websites. And then lastly, I would like to draw your attention to the American Industrial Hygiene Association. And they recently published a, a whole slew of resources for a multitude of different uh, industrial sectors, retail, uh, being one of those, and I in fantastic resources there, giving very specific um, retail-specific uh, guidance and suggestions and some recommended practices uh, as you uh, embark in this process. And so, just wanted to draw that uh, these resources to your attention. All of these will be made available, and as well as many other resources on our website. So, you know, to, to jump on top of that real quickly, there was a question that came in, I think, specific to, to this topic. And maybe maybe this this slide answers some of it. But the question was, you know, where, where, do, where do managers uh, get the detailed information on cleaning? How long does that cleaner need to be on that surface? Do they have to wipe it down or can they just spray? How frequent should they be cleaning surfaces? Uh, where are some good resources that that dive into some of those details for these uh, retailers? Uh, so this is Bob. I don't know if it fired back up. Uh, yeah. It, it, the, um, yeah. So what, it, it's a, just a few Google strokes away. Uh, but if you go to the uh, EPA.gov. Uh, and then just click or, or start hunting for uh, registered disinfectants. That's the buzz term you want to use. And 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 then on that, it will give a listing of the various products that been, have been registered by the EPA to be effective against this virus. But again, I, I want to point your attention to the contact time piece. So well, let, actually, let me back up a little bit. First of all, make darn sure that the people are whoever it is that's doing it or if you're doing it yourself make sure you're mixing it to the right appropriate concentration as defined by the um uh the manufacturer number one um and then number two is uh, adhere to the contact time piece and uh and it varies with products i've seen some as short as uh, two minutes i've seen some as long as 10 minutes uh for for this particular instance and so one of the things we don't want to do is get in a situation where we're we're cleaning. If you think about it, we're cleaning 
but we're not disinfecting because we're not adhering to the contact time piece, if that makes sense. And uh, if, if anybody has problems trying to find that resource, uh, let me know. I will, um, uh, uh, Dr. Hotzler, <clears throat> I think they've come out, I think FDA has now come out with, I'm sorry, EPA has come out with a, um, a, a new clever little app that gets you right to that. I'll, I'll get one of the young guys in the department to, to get that. Or, or Janelle, do you have that? Okay. I do, uh, and it's called the Enlist. Um, yeah. Oh, I just pulled it up and I lost it. Uh, it's called List N Disinfectants on the EPA website, and it's for use specifically against SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19. Um, so and you can, that app, you can search it by several different ways. Uh, so take a look at that uh, in, in Google list and tool EPA, and it's from their office of public engagement. Contact. That's, that's the thing I really want to drive home. The, the contact time is important because we're, that's what we're experiencing here is that the, the folks are diligently doing additional cleaning, but they're not letting it reside long enough on the surfaces. Sure. As, and that, as and that by the very, I'm sorry. And, yes, and that and that uh, more clarifies this this person's question is is that they said, you know, I know where to go to get the list, mm -hmm. but where are the details to tell me how to how how long it has to be on there, how often I should be cleaning. So is it is it still on the the EPA website or is there additional resources for that? Uh, I think it's a combination of two, because, and I'll let Dr. Rios weigh in on this, but but um, because it's going to be product specific, right? So, you know, what, what product is, first of all, you're going to go down the list and say, okay, I'm using, you know, chemical X or whatever. Yep, it's on the list. That's good. Check. Second is, um, if we're, you, you may be getting it, some uh, retailers, I imagine, might buy it where it's already pre-mixed that's a good way to describe it. it whereas others are probably get it might be getting in a concentrated form and then mixing it themselves so that's one of the things we've encountered where perhaps folks are uh, diluting it too much uh and then the contact time piece like i'll, I'll pause there dr is you agree with that or uh, i mean yeah. you're getting it on your or we can't hear you yeah. so, so while uh while Janelle's trying to figure out how to unmute, um, I just wanted to add one thing. So what Bob was saying about the the correct application is important, but the other dimension is the frequency of application, the frequency of cleaning. And one of the things that's going to increase uh, as you reopen is going to be, or should be in the majority of instances, frequency of cleaning. And a lot of that you may not find uh, specific number of days per, I mean, number of times per day that you should clean, um, should clean, but you need to take into account your own business characteristics, how often uh, there are interactions with patrons, how often employee teams change over. So for example, one of the practices that is mentioned or is recommended is that you try and um, if, if you're going to use staggered shifts, um, that you try and keep those people together as a team uh, to avoid spread, but that means that when one shift is uh, ends and another one begins, that might be an opportunity to clean in between. So it's not only application uh, at, at each instance, but also the frequency of cleaning that you need to pay attention to. Yes. And this is Christy. Overhead. Oh, no, no, you go ahead, Christy. 
I was just going to mention some of the manufacturers of those disinfecting products also have information on their websites regarding contact time and, and use. So not advocating for any one company, but some of the common companies like Lysol and Clorox, and they have different specifications on their website about how long to leave it on the surfaces. And Dr. Mean, I, I, I should have asked you this, I apologize, but I mean, from your experience, it's usually like two to 10 minutes, somewhere in there? Right, it varies like that, yeah. more commonly, I think like a couple of minutes, which some of us don't tend to do in our households, and that's, you know, that's a, another issue, but that's right. Sure, okay, got it. <laughs> So I was going to mention that that uh, website that um, I talked about a while ago, the Endlist, um, you can search products by contact time. So if, for example, you, you only have two minutes that you can spare for contact time because this is a rolling handrail for an escalator, for example, then um, you can search for products that um, will disinfect and kill the SARS-CoV-2 virus um, in a matter of two minutes. Now, I don't know how harmful that product will be to the rubbery kind of um, thing that goes around and around in an escalator, but those are things that you have to take a look at. The other really good source of information is the product label, you know, and as Bob mentioned, the, the concentration, the contact time, the frequency, a lot of that information might be there. I hope that helps. Uh, I just thank you to our friend, Dr. Chip Carson, for posting the website on our, in the chat box. So we'll make sure everybody gets that who needs it. Uh, and uh, another question that we, we get frequently is, will I have access to these slides and this recording? Absolutely. We're going we're gonna to have this entire webinar, uh, uh, the recorded version posted, and then we will send you or post the slide deck as well. Uh, so absolutely. We want to make sure this knowledge gets out to everybody. Uh, another question about about cleaning and not so much surfaces and and George we've had this question posed multiple times what about cleaning or purifying the air in retail spaces I'd love to answer that but I know that that is one of Bob Emery's favorite questions okay so one of the main things it, it, Bob's opinion, but we have some scientific data to back this up, has to do with what's called ACH, air changes per hour. And uh, it was some recent work that we did here with regard to outpatient clinics, and there's uh, rankings for what type of procedures are carried out. But uh, my best recommendation, and I get I defer to Dr. Belkos and, and others on this, but um, a, a, a good rule of thumb in this current environment would be four to six air changes per hour. But the important point here is not air circling back around, but more outside air coming in so that four to six room changes per hour are occurring in, in this uh, a setting. Um, because it, it just the, the, the mere notion of recirculation could be problematic until this situation resolves itself. So um, uh, there are means for uh, disinfecting uh, air intakes. So, for example, there are filters. Obviously, you know, high efficiency, what they refer to as HEPA, HEPA filters. And there's also inline uh, UV lights, 
uh, so some of you may have seen these. Sometimes when you go to a clinic, you'll see these mounted on the wall. It's there's a it's a it's blocked by a, usually a metal screen because UV light can actually damage your eyes. Um, but they're, they're mounted, and that's typically for tuberculosis control. Uh, but this virus happens to be susceptible to UV light, and that's why it doesn't persist long out in the outside because of the UV exposure. Um, so UV light is is another uh, option there, um, and uh, so that's some of the, the the approaches that are being used um, to, to if people choose to go that route. But to me, if we go back to uh, I think it was Dr. Rios's hierarchy of controls. Um, the, the flow through ventilation is probably your, your biggest friend. Four, four to six air changes per hour with outside air. I'll, I'll weigh in with my colleagues at this point. George, would you agree with? Yep, that's, that's the average. Um, and if you don't know how to calculate that, talk to your HVAC person, because they should know how to do that and measure it. Right, right. You said four to six air exchanges per hour. Correct. Yeah. Just make sure everybody got that. There was there was a question in the, in the same uh, realm of cleaning. What about fogging and electrostatic uh, disinfecting? It, it 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 does work. We actually have a device that does that our, uh, ourselves, a, a hand fogger, um, and um, we we are using. Uh, it's called vapor phase hydrogen peroxide, uh, and and that uh, product does not appear to damage uh, surfaces um, or electronics, uh, so that's been good. Um, but there are other products out there as well, um, and so it's it's something. I know there are commercial firms now that are offering these services where they'll come in and perhaps fog a place. Uh, after hours or before opening or something like that, my advice would be: uh, well, we have we have a daycare here at the university, right? And so we we've actually used this device within the, the daycare. Um, but I would just make sure that the product that you're using is is an EPA registered disinfectant. That's what I would want to make sure. Perfect. Um, you know, a, a question for some of our uh, our special guests, Ms. Gaspi and and our other our other guests. Um, as you guys gear up to to open, or maybe you're already open and doing some different uh, cleaning methods, can you share what some of those methods uh, that you're implementing might be? Go ahead. Yeah, you can go first. Okay, can you hear me? Yes. Um, so I'm um, in the grocery business, and so we've been dealing with this from the beginning. Um, and one of the things that's important for us is to make sure to really sanitize all the high contact surfaces. Um, so shopping carts are sanitized um, after every use on the handles. Um, we make sure that all the cashiers have product to sanitize the counters and, um, and the, the, the little belt, um, just different things like that. Um, and so, I mean, we've, we've sanitized with, um, 
sprays that we have access to because we can pull from different warehouses, um, but it is difficult to find sanitizing material right now. Um, it's in short supply, and even as a grocer, um, where we actually sell sanitizing supplies, um, it is in short supply, and so you'll find that you need to use more generic things. Um, you're not gonna find the, na the name brand products like Clorox and Lysol as often, um, but there are some effective generic um, labels out there. So, so to follow up on that, you know, I, I, obviously many of the, 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 the sectors in the U.S. have shut down or slowed down. You know, one sector that I would think, at least anecdotally, when I walk into the grocery store, it's packed. Right, especially as people get panicked and rush the store, and so have from a from a from a food industry standpoint, have you guys seen a slowdown, or have you seen an increase, or or what are you what are you seeing in your sector? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely an increase, um, especially with restaurants closed and and then slowly reopening. Um, all the the um, the demand for food has now been put on grocery stores. And, um, you know, obviously takeout has always been an option since this whole thing started, but um, the demand for grocery has just increased astronomically. And so you have to deal with these huge crowds and whether that's, um, there's been certain points where we have to limit the number that are in our store and, and that's hiring security to stand at the door and, and let a certain number in. Um, that's uh, that's asking customers to only have one person per household and that really minimizes the amount of people in a store um, especially here in El Paso people are used to going shopping with their whole family it's it's a whole experience it's an outing um, and um, we've had to ask people just send one person from your house and, and you actually see um, when we started doing that you see when you look out in the store, there's less, there's definitely more customers um, in terms of the number of transactions, but there's less crowding because you're seeing one person, um, you know, either in the produce section or, or wherever they are, instead of this whole family crowding around. Sure. So that really helps. Gotcha. Perfect. Well, thank you very much, Ms. Legaspi. What, uh, tell us a little bit about, about your store and what you guys are, are gearing up to do. Well, basically, we kind of eliminated all people in the store. The only people that are allowed there are the three employees, which is me and two other ones. So everything is curbside pickup. We've done everything from virtual sales to showing through FaceTime, wearing our masks and gloves. So there's really like eliminating all. I mean, there's no one in the store. So it's sales sure. through virtual, which is really cool. And we've kind of shifted that and we've actually done a lot better than before. So right. it's interesting. Good, 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 good. So I know, you know, the, the governor initially had said retail stores can open up, but only curbside. And then he came out and said, well, well, now we can open up to 25% uh, capacity. So at what point do you think uh, a retail store such as such as your own might decide to let customers back in? Well, we've been doing by appointment only. So, but it's interesting because our store was, it's very high end. So you're never going to have more than five people in the store at one time anyway. And gotcha. we're just to appointment only. So it really hasn't affected us as much as before. The only time it did was mother's day because everybody wanted to come in last minute, 
So we just made sure that everybody wore masks. And if you didn't have one, we sold it to you. And we also sold Faith Touch, that way you don't touch the door handle. And we sell hand sanitizer. So basically, we've used this as an opportunity to sell you everything you need in order to be safe. So we kind of piggybacked off of that and maximized the opportunity okay. as well as making it safe. So. Gotcha. Um, so I'll ask this to both of you. Are, are either of your 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 stores doing any type of screening at at the front door before you let people in thermometer checks or you have to be wearing a mask or asking questions any any screening type uh processes well we keep the door locked so it's like again it's appointment only we we don't just let anyone in um so it's kind of like if you have an appointment you can come in if you don't then we'll just make sure that there's not that many people in there but again We've never had that problem to begin with, so it hasn't been much of a difference for my store. Sure, Miss Santos. Uh, we've screened. Uh, we screen our employees every day, so before their shift starts, they have to have their temperature checked. Um, uh -huh. and we have a log that the health department requires. Um, every city in Texas might be different as far as what their health department requires, um, but we make sure that every person's temperature is taken as far as um, employees um, and then they're asked if they have any of the symptoms that they not report to work or if they've been around anyone that's positive um, to not come to work. All our employees are asked to wear masks so that's just now part of the uniform so that they can't refuse to wear it. Um, but on the customer side it's a little bit more difficult. We're dealing with thousands of people every day uh, in our stores and so we can't do temperature checks. Um, even though masks are mandatory in El Paso, um, and there's there's been different debates about that, um, we have signs posted that ask customers to wear masks, but we've had so many different encounters with customers, whether they want to wear the mask or, or they don't, or customers get upset for other customers not wearing the mask and, and vice versa that it causes major, major arguments and um, things that can just um, mm -hmm. erupt really quickly. And so we've made the decision that we don't want to put our employees at risk or in danger. You never know if a customer has a gun, a knife, um, or what they can do. And so, you know, we kindly ask that they wear a mask if they refuse to, um, you know, we just, we let them be because We've seen too many incidences where, where customers get very, very upset. And, and honestly, it's not worth it to put our employees in danger like that. Absolutely. And I, I was just, um, Bob may be about to say the same thing I am, but I was going to highlight this hierarchy uh, control again, this pyramid, because I think this is, to, to your point, Melissa, this is, this is you know, at, the, at the, the foundation of how you prevent something from happening, you remove the hazard. So screening as much as you can. Uh, making you know your your you know as much as you can right making those customers wear a mask or highly advising they wear a mask screening your own employees for fever or any symptoms and preventing that hazard from coming into the store is is, a, is the most effective uh, method now and we obviously realize that's not always feasible right it, sometimes you just can't do as much as you probably would want to do but as much as you can you'll you'll hopefully reduce that risk Bob did you have something to add I, I I, I, I didn't know if I was allowed to actually ask a question. I didn't. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the reason I, for the, the, the parties that are on this uh, web thing, 
one of the issues I see, uh, by the way, I agree with everything you're saying there, but um, uh, one of the issues I see coming up is as this um, legion of uh, contact investigators are being brought on board so that when someone, going back to this R naught value, we have a confirmed case and now there's going to be uh, calls to what I would refer to as unsuspecting individuals, good people, you know, but it's just, I get a call up and, you know, after dinner that says you may have been potentially exposed and, and they won't know what to do. And, and so I think that's something that we need collectively as a society to be prepared for. And, and I, I would defer to Dr. Delclose to maybe summarize what the, the, the next step will be, but I can just envision many people becoming quite upset because they don't, you know, maybe I'm at home with my children or, um, you know, do I go to work and does the employer understand and, and that sort of thing. So, I, 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 because as we get more and more of these contact investigations occurring, we're going to get more and more of that spillover. Yeah, so I'm glad you brought that up, Bob, because um, when you look at the governor's report, at least when I looked at it initially, it's a little bit confusing. It talks about employers and contact tracing. I don't know if Melissa and uh, Jaswina agree or not. They talk about employers and contact tracing in the same sentence. As if it seems as if the employers have a role in contact tracing. They don't. Let me make that really clear. Contact tracing is something that is done by a health department. So uh, the way it works is when the health department hears about a positive confirmed case, they're con they have a whole team of contact tracers. Literally, they are gearing up to have them in the thousands. They needed, the last time I checked, they needed 8,000 in the entire state. That's correct. So, yeah, 8,000. So they will call the this person that's positive and ask them about who they were in touch with and, you know, and then kind of um, take down those people's names and contact them to let them know that they may have been exposed. And they'll provide some guidance, et cetera. They may also recommend that they not go to work if the exposure was really severe for at least 14 days, for example. And so employers should know about that. But really, uh, and I don't know if it's come up or not, but I want to make it really, really clear. Employers really should have no business in A, taking on contact tracing by themselves it's 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 really it's not an easy art <laughs> uh and and also there is a risk of losing confidentiality because when the state health department calls or the local health department calls for contact trace even the person they call and they tell them you may have been exposed to somebody when that person says to whom we can't say so keeping confidentiality is very important and in a workplace that sometimes becomes a little touchy uh, frankly, human nature may, may be that a, a, a well-meaning employee who is positive will call their employee and say, hey, I'm positive. And then it kind of starts from there and then confidentiality is lost. But obviously it was the, the person themselves that, that, that revealed that. But um, contact tracing is something done by a health department. You will find out about it as an employer because they, the, the employee will call you and say, I've been told to stay at home. But really, you shouldn't ask too much more than that. Mm -hmm. Okay, I don't know if y'all agree or not. Just, just from, yes, uh, from the employer's perspective, if, if someone is positive and they can't uh, go to work, obviously, you're required to pay them for a certain amount of time, 100% of their pay. Um, that was a new law passed um, that went effective April 1st. So um, 
in order to pay them 100%, you kind of have to know that they were positive. Um, so that eventually will come out to the employer. What about those that are placed in quarantine? In other words, they were exposed, but they don't have the disease, but they've been told to stay home. Same deal? So uh, as the law reads, um, I believe if you are in a household, um, let me see if I have it somewhere. If you are with someone who's tested positive and you have to be quarantined, I believe you're also paid 100% for two weeks. Um, it's called the paid sick leave and expanded family and medical leave under the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. Um, there's also, um, you also have to pay someone, I think it's two thirds of their pay for 12 weeks if they can't work because of no child care. Good feedback, thank you. I think uh, Michelle had a, a comment to make. Yeah, I do. So I want to go back to uh, sanitation of uh, high contact surfaces and sanitizing uh, shopping carts. Um, what I've been seeing as um, when I enter shopping centers, masked of course, is that the end of the cart is placed closest to the entry door. So if that end of the cart is not being sanitized and um, your customers or patrons are walking in and grabbing the end of the cart, you may want to think about um, if you're only sanitizing those handles, uh, reversing that and placing uh, the handle side closest to wherever they're going to be grabbed. Um, so as customers walk, walk in, they're grabbing the part of the cart that's uh, been sanitized. That's a good point, and even even probably applies to the the you know the the uh, the smaller baskets you can carry because most of the time they're stacked all together and you have to go and dig you know dig one out not so easy so maybe separating those handheld baskets out maybe a little bit easier. It's a good point. All right, a question came in, and uh, probably going to go back to Bob. Uh, this person said, "I'm assisting a gym in opening." Does the four to six air exchanges per hour still apply to a gym if they have high respiratory rates inside that facility, or should we increase that air exchange rate? Uh, you know, good question. <laughs> I, at a minimum, I would go to four to six, uh, maybe increase it. But what you, what I think, what you have to understand is that as you bring in outside air. And then you have to condition that air, you know, either heat it or cool it. It's going to drive up your utility bill. Um, and so um, I, I think uh, I, I can tell you, you know, I'll defer to Dr. Delcos here in a second. But based on this project we were just involved with, um, I, I, with regard to a high intensity, let's say a CrossFit gym or something like that, right? Um, that I'm not sure that would even reach the um, threshold for something akin to a um, uh, a, a cough-inducing procedure like intubating a, a patient, uh, right? And so, I, I, you know, it, I, I've been asked for many questions that I'm like, I'm, I'm giving you my best guess. <laughs> Dr. Delquist, would you yeah, agree? Well, six? Uh, I'm, I'm not an HVAC uh, expert by any means. I would think... I mean, I don't know what the right 
number of air exchanges is above four to six for a gym. But if you, one point that you made earlier, Bob, I think is very important. It's to distinguish between ventilation, which is the exchange of air, replacing it with fresh air from the outside, and recirculation, which is recirculation uh, is not a good thing. Uh, mm -hmm. Imagine if you take a room and you seal it off completely and you've got some sort of dust in the carpet um, or in the air and you put on a fan in that room, the only thing you're going to achieve is that those dust particles will stay suspended in the air for a longer period of time, hence they could be more prone to being uh, inhaled. You're not exchanging air, you're just recirculating. The reason I bring this up is because a lot of gyms have fans too. So you got to uh, uh, compare, you know, the or, or make sure that you don't confuse air exchanges mm -hmm. with simply putting in fans. They're not equivalent, and one may actually offset the other. Again, I'd talk to your HVAC person about that. And and, and also focus uh, uh, for Dr. Mina here for a second. But the the fomite issue that the surface is going to be equally important uh, in this whole effort as people come back to gyms, the the routine cleaning and disinfection of the either you know the apparatuses that they get on or the you know weights or wh whatever it is so, yeah. would you right right i know we're going to think address gyms later but it just re it's a reminder of the human interaction and when you have these high touch surfaces in any establishment and so it's that common and michelle's question earlier then um maybe going to Jasmine and melissa reminds me of other aspects within retail. So a couple that come to mind regarding the keypads for transactions and how that relates to whether a customer is better off going through a self-checkout. I've seen grocery stores where there's someone standing there with a disinfectant to wipe down the keypad between patrons, but then where's the contact time there? <laughs> or are you better off going through a line with the cashier? And I in some establishments where the cashier is has a hand sanitizer between customers but not that's not always the case and so what are your thoughts on that well for me it's more manual transaction again we've been doing everything through virtual so we take care of all the transactions so they haven't been able to touch anything but if they do come in um, I mean it hasn't been an issue or anything yet I mean there, now there's different ways to pay like just the what is that thing called when you just put your card on top of it. So I haven't had any, luckily I haven't had any issues like you, Melissa. <laughs> Same, but so that's my feedback. Yeah, um, for us, I mean, we accept card, check and, and cash, and that's really difficult to just go to one type of payment in a grocery store when, you, when you're dealing with so many different types of people. Um, but we've tried to minimize contact, so, um, we used to have the signature requirement on credit cards. We've eliminated that if they use the chip on the credit card, because by law that's not required. So um, if they use the chip, they just enter the chip or the tap and um, no signature requirement comes up. Um, our cashiers um, are wearing gloves. So if they're touching cash, um, you know, the hope is that we're minimizing the contact there and they're changing up their gloves regularly. Um, but as far as disinfecting the pin pads, um, a lot of people have been spraying them directly, which is going to ruin them. Um, and so you cannot spray your pin pad um, just directly. So you have to either get like a wipe that has disinfectant and then wipe it down. 
Um, I've seen some retailers cover the, the buttons with a plastic and then they disinfect that plastic. Um, but it's really important that you do not spray it or you'll ruin your pin pad. Correct. Yes. Has, has there been thoughts about, um, and well, I know that there have regarding direction down aisles, you know, customer direction, their signage, and you know, this some I've I've heard some customers complain of concerns that they can't see the direction, may not your but others because they don't have it posted at eye level. You're pushing a cart, but the, the direction arrow was on the on the floor. But that in and maybe coinciding with your comment about families not going to the grocery store, limit congestion. You have the direction flow, um, but also if you don't have as many cashier lines open, like I know some establishments are really fostering that self-checkout, then you are almost forcing customers to be lined up down aisles and sometimes it's in the wrong direction. It's, it's I just wondered if that type of potential chaos have you experienced in your store? Yeah, so for us, we do not have the arrows on the floor. Um, we have um, floor stickers that ask to keep a six foot distance throughout the store and then for our checkout lines. Um, but the arrows, honestly, it's a good idea in theory, but it's more confusing for the customers. They don't pay attention to them anyways. You can't have someone at every single aisle enforcing it. Um, it's just another thing that makes people upset. Um, whether at the store or at other customers for not following it. Um, and the way that people shop, the flow that they take, you know, people have their set patterns, their their habits in the way that they shop. Um, and it's really difficult to change that. And I think that people just monitor themselves already. If they see too many people in an aisle, they just wait. Um, and, and to put the arrows, um, I've been in stores where they have them and people aren't paying attention. And so I just, I think, um, it's not worth it. Um, but as far as our checkout lines, we have, um, at our peak times, we have made sure that all of our registers are open. So we don't have self-checkout at our stores. It's all uh, with cashiers. Um, and so we've opened all our registers at our peak times. And so that makes our lines go a lot quicker. Um, and then again, we do have the floor stickers for every aisle, for every checkout line um, to keep that six foot distance. Um, but as, as many cashiers as you can have really helps get the people in and out. And that is a, that is a great uh, segue into in, to one of our attendees' questions. And it's about number of people in restrooms. Uh, it, what, are there any recommendations or maybe some, some, uh, uh, some practical things that our panelists are doing? Uh, or what's the recommendation on number of people in restrooms? Is there a specific number of people per square foot in, that should be in a restroom? How do you monitor that? Or is it just open season because it's a restroom? Uh, yeah, for us, we don't have a, a number. I mean, I suppose it's the number of stalls that you have is the max people that can be in there. Um, but we really don't have a restroom crowding problem yet. So I suppose yeah, we'll I know when I've been to some stores, you know, they may have a sign on the door that says, please limit, you know, to six feet, but there's, you know, there's no monitoring of that process. And I guess if you got to go, you, you got to go, but it was, it's a great question. Uh, you know, is what, is there any regulation or standard or guidance out there to, uh, to limit people in the bathrooms, but unless a panelist 
has that answer. I, I'm not sure there there is one. We only have one restroom, so. Yeah. <laughs> there you go, easy. Uh, another question that popped up, could Dr. Emery comment on the effectiveness and scientific support for the use of electrostatic spray technology compared to fogging technology? Uh, I, I think, so, so there is a, uh, a technique that's being used in a, fog, a fogger, if I, if I think that's what the questioner is asking, that it's a um, an, an ionized, um, uh, what's the best term to use? It's, it's, it's hydrogen peroxide, but it's, it's thermally ionized. And I, I, my hunch is that's what they're asking about. And we, I have heard about this. We do not have one here, but it has been used. And I believe it has been determined to be effective because I want to say it's being used to disinfect hospital rooms, but perhaps the listener can weigh in on that one or maybe contact me on the side on that one because that, that's um, that, that's another technique. I guess what I want to clarify is, are you talking about a, a hydrogen peroxide, vapor phase hydrogen peroxide? That's sure. what I'd like to clarify. Sure, and, and uh, he's welcome to, to type in a, a clarification into the into the chat box there. Oh, yeah. uh, Yep. And so somebody again asked if, if this recording will be available after the session. Absolutely. The entire session will be available with the slides. And what we try to do is make sure that we have answered all of the questions live. So that way you can go back and listen to the answers on the recording. If for whatever reason we run out of time, we will still answer those, those written in questions and supply that to everybody. Dave, did you have a comment? Yeah, just going back to the, uh, the question on the restroom signage and, and possible doors, I would uh, refer uh, those in attendance to look into these hand-free door openers. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes they're called pedal holes right. where you can open the door with your feet and it's hands-free. So that would eliminate the uh, potential contact of the hand on any type of doors, not just the restrooms, but other doors within a facility. Yeah, that's a good tip. We actually installed those on our restrooms at the Houston Safety Council, and uh, they're effective. They work. I would just add that for any door, any um, uh, that I come across, regardless of whether it's a restroom or something else, if I can at all use my elbow, I use it. That's a good point as well. Um, maybe a question for our, our two um, panelists uh, from our industry. What are you, what are you most concerned about? What are you most scared about? Uh, you know, as 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 this thing gets better or gets worse, what what are some of the hurdles maybe you've you've had to overcome, or maybe some of the obstacles that you're dreading that may come into effect? Whether it's you know la lack of meat in the grocery store, or or um, these the restrictions get even more relaxed. You know, what what are some of those things that are kind of on the back of your head that Maybe some of our attendees that are joining us today may may you know, have, have the same feelings. You want me to go first? Sure, go ahead. So, well, I've had two issues. One is the lack of inventory. A lot of the stuff that we get gets shipped overseas from Europe or China, and well, shipping has been a disaster. So I'm not able to fill in my inventory. So. I can't sell um, the turn to sales ratio as fast as I need to, which ultimately hurts like my whole business plan. So that's been a headache. 
number one. And a lot of uh, vendors aren't even producing. They've lost either they've gone out of business or they can't produce their garments. So it leaves me to start over from scratch. And also the second thing is I'm used to high-end luxury price point items, which no one wants to buy right now, obviously, because right. you can't travel, you can't wear formal gowns or anything like that. So I've had to completely change my business strategy. I mean, 180, which has been kind of fun, to be honest, to kind of, see what what people want in the market and uh you know target to them but i mean it's just it's like starting over from scratch out of nowhere without you know so that's been my two biggest hurdles sure melissa uh yeah i think a few things um especially from the beginning i think our biggest concern has been the health of our employees um we have about 200 employees and um certain positions interact with customers a little bit more than others do. Um, cashiers obviously are at the forefront of all this and are interacting with every person. Um, and so it's, it's really scary to, um, to think, especially when it all started, the media, you know, makes you think that everyone's going to get it. If you, if you touch someone who, um, who you're not related to or in the same household, and so, you know, we've had to deal with um, the first week we had a, a cashier have a panic attack um, when, the, when the rushes came in and, and it was like a, a first experience for us just experiencing um, an insanely crowded store. Um, when the mayor here issued the stay at home order, the, pr the press conference wasn't even done and our store got rushed and we weren't ready with security um, and our store was just, I have never seen a store like that. And so um, the health of our employees has always been a big thing. And so making sure that they have the masks and the gloves and, and the sanitizing material is, is just really important. And, um, and making sure that they know that they can talk to us if, if they're scared or if they need to take time off, we've had to um, you know, come up with different policies regarding time off if you're not sick. Um, and then um, also the prices of things are going up. And so that's been a big concern. And I can see that for not just the grocery retailers, but other types of retailers. Um, prices are increasing on things and, and customers will wanna accuse you of price gouging when that's not true. Um, I'm sure you all have seen the price of beef increase um, incredibly over the last few weeks. In March, the price of eggs went up a lot. And so customers don't necessarily understand the concept of supply and demand all the time. Um, and, um, and so we've had to be really transparent with our customers and we've posted on our website letters explaining, this is why egg prices are going up and this is what we're doing, or this is why beef prices are going up and this is what we're doing. Um, and we're not making as much money um, in terms of margin on some of these items because we don't want to pass on that whole cost to to the customer, um, and yet they still get upset. And so that's really important to try to to be transparent with our customers and, and try to explain the increase in price. Um, and and then also the the lack of um, of inventory. Sometimes it's going to be about another year until we're back to normal, at least uh, for all grocery retailers um, in terms of supplying your your whole shelf uh, with everything you need. Um, we're still short on certain things. Um, different companies aren't making as many varieties and things. And so uh, you may have been used to different types of mayo and different sizes and different types of bottles. 
and they're scaling back to just a few SKUs. Um, and, and that's the same with, with all different types of food. Um, and so that's been a, a big adjustment. Excellent. Thank you for those comments. Uh, we have a, an attendee that wrote in and I, it looks like he or she coming from uh, in Ohio. So welcome to Texas. Uh, and they just wanted to comment that the Costco's in Ohio have, have locked every other bathroom stall to keep that distance and uh, keep people hopefully out. Uh, maybe they, they still might be lingering, I guess, in the bathroom, but they've done their part to lock those every other cabin to make sure that they can try to reduce as many people in the restrooms as possible. So that was a, a good comment there. Uh, uh, another comment that came in was to say, you know, be, be cautious of, of the fogging and the disinfecting uh, uh, electrostatic fogging as well because you know hydrogen peroxide is 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 a toxic chemical so uh, just because they can fog doesn't mean it's always uh, the best to do and that needs to be done by professional people and probably some type of respirator gear I would imagine uh, moreover you know when the when those when you get your facility fogged you certainly don't want to ruin your product that you have in the store by those foggers. I, I would highly doubt that uh, Ms. Legaspi wants to spray all of her her, her fine clothing with uh, chemicals. So just be cautious of what 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 is in that chemical and who is performing that uh, that process for you. That was a good comment by Dr. If, Carson again. If, if I can, hey, this is Bob. Just, um, uh, I was on mute there, but uh, back to that point. Um, the, the reason we chose to go with the vapor phase hydrogen peroxide option for the fogging was that its uh, residual is uh, of water. Ah, good. In, in other words, it, 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 was, it was considered to be, from our assessment, the least uh, damaging or impactful uh, to surfaces, whether it be a product in a store or, you know, that, that's, that's just the decision we made. But, I mean, yeah. anybody who's interested in fogging, or maybe it's a customer demand that they want to, you know, have the place fogged, I would ask about those residuals. That Absolutely, and I, you know, I think that what it what is what has happened now is, you know, when when so many people are so many businesses are struggling to 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 you know turn a profit on what they normally do, sometimes they tend to say, well, you know what, today I'm going to be a fogger. So just make sure you know what you're getting, what the chemical is, uh, and, and what needs to go on should you hire somebody to come out and, and do that. Uh, another question that, that came, it's regarding gloves. Uh, they say there are mixed messages about the use of disposable gloves to mitigate the viral transmission for employees in the retail sector. Could somebody talk about uh, when gloves might be indicated? <laughs> I think we have one of the worldwide experts on this call on fomites. So, Dr. Mina, by all means. I don't know. I wouldn't say that, but I just think I think the overall message, and everyone else can please weigh in, especially the guest panelists regarding practical aspects, is that the viruses and other pathogens can be transmitted through gloves or, you know, from, from services to gloves to a person. So in many settings, it's probably better to practice very frequent and effective hand washing as we've all been taught, you know, to do, um, as opposed to wearing gloves. If gloves aren't worn the, the right way, they can still transmit um, 
the novel coronavirus to services and to other people. And so I think just in, in special circumstances, I went through an establishment, it was a car wash, for example, and it was someone who had one specific job um, standing there to touch that pin pad and you know, put the order in and the specifications for the car wash, wore gloves the whole time, wasn't interacting with the public or handling money and then not handling money. So just something to think about, still what you're doing, gloves is not necessarily a safeguard to protect you if they're not used properly, if they're not taken off properly. And, and then sometimes when we wear gloves, we forget about those aspects where washing is effective in providing that protection. Gloves make me very nervous. <laughs> um, I think they give us a false sense of security. You know, when you look at how gloves are used in a hospital, they really are intended for single use. You put them on, you do something, you take them off. That's not uh, all that easy to do uh, when they're in short supply or when you're out in the non-healthcare setting. So I worry about the false sense of security that gives us because, as Christy was saying, you know, you touch something and you will be transmitting it. Transmitting. You might protect yourself for a certain point in time until you touch your face, by the way, with a glove. Um, but you you may also be contributing to spread. So if you do use gloves, I think the parameters need to be very clear and the folks need to be trained on how long they can use them, uh, what the risk of transmission is, so that at least they think about it as they're, they're doing it. Excellent. Let's see here. Question for Dr. Del Close. If we start to see an increase in infections in Texas after reopening, what do you think the threshold should be for deciding to slow back down? So, <laughs> well, um, I said at the beginning that this is not an issue of public health being confronted with economics or, or business, right? It's, it's really a partnership. Um, I think trends are more important than spot decisions made on, um, you know, on just one data point, something that happens one day, you have to look at it over time. Um, I do, I, I, at the same time, I, I think we can't ignore trends. If there truly is an increase that can be traced back to a certain reopening action, uh, I think we need to pay attention to it. I don't know what the threshold is. There is a threshold, for example, for hospitals, um, which is that they have to maintain at all times at least 15% capacity should there be a surge in cases that they can accommodate it. Um, you know, nobody wants lots more cases, of course, but what we want even less is so many cases that they overwhelm the hospitals because then, then um, you know, we're back to that whole issue about the peak. Uh, and, and overloading uh, or flooding the, the hospital system. In general, when there's hospital capacity, we can, we can handle the cases. You don't want them to happen, but if they happen, the health system has the capability of, of handling them. So I think the 15% rule is, is reasonable in Texas because overall in Texas, the hospitals have done pretty well from all standpoints, from standpoint of having enough rooms and ventilators and PPE. Uh, there have been close uh, close calls, especially with PPE, but we fortunately figured out ways to handle them and, and then sometimes just dragging things out a day or two allows, allows you to buy enough time for the supplies to come in or figure a, a way out. With respect to the case trends, I, you know, 
the original CDC guidelines called for states not to start their reopening processes until there had been a sustained decline in cases over a 14-day period. And we also know from the news, and I'm not being political or anything, but uh, that, that pretty much no state is following that, um, or, or rare, a rare state is following that. So then you go to, okay, well, then what are they following? As long as they have some parameters that are common sense that, and, and that are, are reasonable or, or can be reasoned, uh, I'm okay with that, as long as they then stick to what they said, right? Which is, we're going to monitor this, and this is going to drive our decisions. It's going to be science-driven or data-driven. What I worry about is when we put out parameters out there, and then we don't follow them. Right. Well, I, I, I do my best not to uh, unmask anybody, but when I do see an esteemed colleague uh, online asking questions, uh, uh, thank you, Dr. Felkner, for that question. It was, uh, it was a good one, and we miss seeing you. Uh, another question, should cashiers wear gloves? Is that a question for me or for a... Oh, sure. Well, why don't we ask it to you first. Are your cashiers wearing gloves? Um, they are. Um, as, as far as how often they're changing, um, I mean, obviously you can change them more often than... than than you are because we're not doing it after every transaction. Um, but, and, that, and that, this sounds awful to even say, but a lot of the things that you have to do are for the appearance to the customers. Obviously it's for the safety of, of your employees, um, but customers are looking at every single thing that you do. And if they see bare hands, especially around food, they freak out. Um, so our, we have bakeries and delis and our our, glove, our employees there have always worn gloves and they change them out after every single transaction in the bakery and deli. Our grocery cashiers are a little different, um, but they are wearing gloves. So, hey, this, this is Bob and I agree with everything. M Melissa, when you are ready to go to grad school, you come to Houston and we're gonna <laughs> set you up here with a scholarship because you have hit the nail on the head here. Um, that, uh, it's it's one thing with the the PPE issue, but there's also the optics associated with it, and that's really really important. And so I think the combination of the two, if I were asked, I'd say yes, by by all means wear gloves, and then um, we'll work out some frequency on when they would be uh, switched out. But when you're ready to when you're ready to go to school, you want to get a doctorate? I get I can print out. We got we got some paper here. We, <laughs> I just wanted to add, Melissa, though, I think it's important to look at your cashiers and know exactly what they're doing, because it may be perfectly fine to wear gloves, because the level of interaction between her, his or her gloved hand and another person may be close to zero. Mm -hmm. um, or maybe, you know, maybe all they're doing is picking up the products on the assembly, you know, on the, um, on the belt and then running them through the scanner. And yes, we can talk about fomites on surfaces, et cetera. Generally cardboard stuff is, uh, Christy can, can correct me, is, doesn't last very long. But even if that's the case, and she is, uh, she or he are the only ones that they are in contact with, as long as they're mindful about not touching their faces and all of that, then you can prolong the use of the glove there. What I worry about is when they're exchanging, you said exchanging money, you know, so that, that you know, they, they're grabbing something from another person that it's been in their pocket or uh, somehow interacting with other folks, then I begin to get worried. And then maybe the, the changing out of the gloves should be more frequent. Right. But observing practices is very important. And that's something that you can't 
put on every guideline. You know, you, we can't algorithm safety to death, as I call it. <laughs> there are always going to be exceptions, and that's where you, the individual employers, come in because you know your business, and you can take general principles and figure out ways to apply them to your business that no professional society is going to figure out for you as well as you do. So you need to know it and observe. Right. Yeah, I, I think it's very important for retailers. Um, just like you said, you know your customers, you you know your demographics, and um, you know like, like the mask thing. You know, I've seen stores where you absolutely cannot come in unless you wear a mask. And and for us, we know our customers, and and they have, and th and that's why we we've stopped absolutely enforcing it because our customers are going to cause um, major fights um that can be violent and it's it's safer to to not force it on them so let me so, just jump in and say that something that so masks work universal masking reciprocal masking and i'm talking about masking not not ppe and bob made the distinction they work but they're no substitute for social distancing mm -hmm. the thing that works the best is social distancing you acknowledge that there are going to be situations where you can't keep that and that's where they the face covering adds uh, has an added value, right? An act, added protective value, but th they work. So, so, Melissa, I forgot that Dr. Mina's on this uh, shindig. So you just walk across over to El Paso. You tell Dr. Mina to give you a degree in public health. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did have a, a follow up question that's similar, I think, to what we've been talking about: masking and social distancing and and then just even the layouts of the stores. Regarding, and this is for anyone on the panel, from a safety perspective, as well as a practical perspective, I've noticed many establishments have only now one entrance and exit. So if a grocery store had two, one's closed, and then there's one where people are coming and going, and I, I wondered just safety overall to have that, and then two, uh, during high peak times for a grocery store, there can be is there can be several people congregated in in that area. They have the security guard. You have at least two people wiping down and the cards, and then people coming and going. And when I asked questions about that, I was I was told this was because they need to monitor their capacity, and that was the best way to do it. If they had two entrances and exits, it was difficult to say that they were maintaining 25% capacity. But I'm just wondering from the panelists in terms of congestion and and the whole point of having the aisle directions that may or may not be effective anyways what are your thoughts about having that one entrance and exit and just between our melissa do you your operations a little bit different right now but melissa do you have that set up in your grocery stores uh no so we two of our three stores have only one entrance exit and so it's it's not possible for us um but especially with this we have one security guard usually um and i think he keeps people moving but usually people um i think it's just the nature of society now and and just the nature of all of this people are generally uh moving they're not lingering um you know we we have customers that are before this would come every day they buy their lottery tickets every day they hang out by the lottery machine we're not seeing that anymore um, and so I, I think people self-monitor themselves for the most part. You have some people that just don't care at all and, and you, kind, you kindly ask them to, to move along. Um, but yeah, for us, we, we only have one entrance and exit. 
so it's about two, two points. Uh, one is you have to be very careful about the fire code issue because we've had these many requests about this, and um, there's a, a you know take away you know take COVID off the table for a second. We have to maintain these uh, paths of egress uh, for people to be get be able to get out of the building if it catches on fire, right? So please be careful if you're trying to. Uh, channel folks in through certain doors, one in, one out. I get the, the logic there, but don't lock those other doors. Make sure, and, and number two is as people are trying to create a social distancing. So let's let's take a, a grocery store that has uh, an, an eat-in uh, area. I don't know what you call it, a cafe or something, you know. And so maybe what they're doing is removing every other table uh, or, or or these chairs so that it, it it forces social distancing. But the problem is they're stacking them up in front of the fire exits in the back of the store or the back of the restaurant. So um, so I, I I think that's something we all of us need to be collectively aware of as we uh, do these engineering solutions. Make sure we don't cause other problems with regard to fire code or or blocking exits. Right. I, I have not been a fan of the one entrance exit, but what I have been told from employers was that they did that because that was their their best method of counting people and maintaining the capacity that they were required to do. So, Excellent. Well, we have reached our time a couple of minutes over, which is which is fine. We got through every question that was posed to us today. So uh, unless there are any wrap up uh, comments, which I'll, I'll op open up in a second, our next webinar will be next week, same time, same place, that we'll be talking about the restaurant industry, which I think is gonna be a, a big topic as well. So please join us again, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, especially if they're in that restaurant industry, and we hope to have another good webinar. And I will uh, just open it up to any of the panelists if they had any closing comments to make. <laughs> thank you for inviting us. Yeah. And Melissa and Jaswina, thank you very much. Uh, we know you're very busy. Uh, you're stressed probably because of all the stuff that's going on. So we doubly appreciate your willingness to come on. And I think it makes all the difference. This is really more about hearing from employers. Employers, uh, Hopefully you notice the format. It's really more of a discussion. It's like having a, a pleasant conversation. That's what we wanted to do. And uh, your, your insight was extremely helpful. Thank you, both of you.